Our New Testament reading today is from John 2nd, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. Has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I turned it on. I did it right. That's good. It's a good start. Uh, my name is Jonathan Alston. Uh, I'm an intern here at Grace and Peace. Um, I uh, get the chance to work here for about 10 hours a week, and then I have a full-time job as a technical writer the rest of the time. Um, kind of taking some steps towards ordination, and uh, it's been a really great experience. And just wanted to say that um, if I hadn't had a chance to meet some of you, and I know I haven't, um, I, would, I would love the chance to do that. I'd love to take people to lunch and coffee and, and all the rest. So um, feel free to reach out um, and love to get together with you. It's really a privilege to get another chance to uh, preach for you this morning. I'm thankful that after I did this once, you didn't ask Tim to never let me do it again. So I appreciate you uh, showing up and letting me do this. I just want to say that, um, as, as I said the first time I preached, that um, I'm really grateful for the love that this church has shown to me and to my family, and grateful for the chance just to be an intern here. Um, we're a young family, only been married a little over four years, and uh, throughout our short history as a family, we've really been craving stability within a community and really wanting that, and uh, we feel as though this church has offered that to us, and uh, it's taking shape in our family in a lot of great ways. I'm just uh, really thankful, so thank you. Um, the last two weeks, Tim has walked us through the beginning of the Epiphany season that we're in now as a church, and I get the opportunity to continue in that vein by looking at Jesus' first miracle when he turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And I think uh, when Tim gets back, we'll be getting into something a little different, but for now, we'll keep our eyes focused on, on Epiphany. Um, I do want to say, before I get started, I um, gained a lot of insight from Tim Keller's sermon on um, John 2, uh, on this uh, story, and also from uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, work about miracles and signs in um, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. I know it's really strange that somebody at this church would be leaning on those two gentlemen, but um, it is what it is. So I just wanted to say that before we got started. And I want to go ahead and pray for us again, if you'll join me. Father, we um, thank you that you have come to meet us here this morning.
and that your desire for us is to show us your light, to give us epiphany, to give us revelation. Um, so we, we leave these words that I'm about to speak to you and uh, so that your spirit may uh, illuminate the words and illuminate your word and so that we may see you and know you and you may reveal yourself to us. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I once heard about a study that was done to determine at what time of year people were the saddest, the most blue, the most inclined to be depressed, that sort of thing. And as I remember it, I think this is right, they categorized their findings by month. And it turns out the saddest month of the year is the one we're right in the middle of. It's January. And you can imagine why January is a sad month. Nights are long, days are short, they're often dreary, especially this week. The holiday season is over, along with whatever joy or promise it held. Those who loved Christmas and New Year's maybe feel like a long-awaited visit from a friend has come, and now it's gone. It's over. Those for whom the holidays are painful are fresh off the reminder of it. Resolutions are already crumbling, and the world has already soiled the freshness of the New Year with bad news, violence, war, and all the other things. My son is uh, three years old, so this was really the first Christmas that he was able to express his excitement and anticipation for opening gifts and being with family. So it also, as it turns out, was his first year to take sad notice of the disappearing Christmas trees and lights and his favorite, the Santa Santa blow-up dolls in front yards. And maybe we feel like him, we feel collectively like this great light came into our lives and they suddenly just went dark. Sad January, right? When I was growing up as a missionary kid in uh, West Africa, one of our favorite, favorite family movies was Hoosiers. Any Hoosiers fans in the building? Yep. All right. Jimmy Chitwood. Um, that was a movie starring Gene Hackman. He's a high school basketball co- coach in his first year at a tiny high school in Indiana farm country. And he inexplicably leads his team of only eight players to the state championship. And this was back before schools were divided into different um, divisions by size. So this, this is the quintessential Cinderella story in basketball. And we watched and re-watched Jimmy Chitwood, the team's best player, sink a jump shot at the buzzer in the state championship game to pull off the greatest upset and the most glorious win that I could ever imagine as a child. In the movie, the crowd rushes the floor. Those old flash bulbs are popping There's triumphant music swelling, and then all of a sudden it all fades out to a shot of a quiet cornfield. Back home in the little town of Hickory. Feels like a lonely place compared to the lights of the arena in far-off Indianapolis. And I remember my dad saying once that that shot of the cornfield always made him sad. We were at the time in West Africa, an ocean away from our family and a lot of our friends without even the internet or a landline to connect us. And that shot of the cornfield kind of brought him back down to earth when the excitement was over and we were just here and lonely. And I think that's some reflection of where we might be now in the liturgical calendar in the early weeks of this epiphany season. The wise men's shining star and the shepherd's singing angels have announced the coming of our king and savior. We've invited him into our existence, but in some ways it feels like the light that's all around him maybe has gone out. And this is our experience of Christ sometimes. He's here, but he's hard to see. And that's why what we need now in this season, what we long for, is epiphany, revelation, insight. We want the light and the glory to come back on, if just for a moment, 
And so to do this, we go to the Gospels. We go to Jesus' miracles and signs. We go to his parables and his sayings so that we can see his glory revealed to all creation. And in the Gospel story that we just had read for us where Jesus turns his water into wine, this water into wine, we believe that what he is offering us this morning is epiphany and revelation through this story. So in hopes of helping us experience that, I just want to ask two questions about this story. First, what is this wine? And second, how do we get it? What is this wine and how do we get it? On the third day, Genesis tells us, God gathered the waters of the earth into one place so that out of the water dry land appeared. It kind of sounds like the ground had been down there waiting, waiting for God to speak to it and raise it up into this newly created light. Like the earth was always a potential within the water. Mimicking Genesis, John began his gospel with, in the beginning. And then after a time he wrote, on the third day, there was a wedding. At this wedding, the wine ran out, and Jesus, the word that spoke in the beginning, moved upon the waters again, so that out of the water came wine. It sounds as if the wine, like the ground before it, had been waiting for God to speak to it. Like the wine was always a potential within the water. This wine was the stuff of new creation. And it had been waiting these long ages for Christ to come. Waiting like a bride waits for her husband. The earth on that third day of creation had heard God's voice raise her up out of the water. She had stirred at his touch when he formed the man, Adam, out of her dust. He who was to tend and cultivate her. But then to her great agony... God cursed her because of the man. But then, to her great joy, God told that man's descendants, I will come, and as we read in Isaiah this morning, I will come and I will marry your land. And the world will run with wine on her wedding day. And now, at this wedding, the bridegroom had arrived. He was here. And that's what Jesus is displaying for us in his first miracle. And Jesus pulled out all the stops for the celebration, too. The master of the feast, what we might call the MC of the wedding, was astonished that the silly bridegroom had decided to serve the best wine after everybody was already drunk. Why would you do this? This is John's way of letting us know that Jesus didn't make any old wine. He made the best wine. He made fine wine. And what's more, the text tells us that the servants filled to the brim six jars, each of which could hold 20 to 30 gallons apiece. So these aren't the pots that hold the fiddle-leaf figs in your home. These things are monsters. And if we approximated the amount of wine that Jesus produced by our standard wine bottles today, we're talking about something in the vicinity of 750 bottles of wine. So the crowd at this wedding might have been able to polish off one or maybe one and a half of these stone jars if they hadn't already had their their fill. But as it was, who knows how much of this fine wine was left over. So needless to say, Jesus was just made an excessive amount of wine for this wedding. And by this excess, by this extravagance, Jesus is saying, there's a lot more where that came from. This kingdom that I'm bringing, this party that I'm bringing, is a transformation of the entire planet from curse to blessing, from death to sadness, from death and sadness to festival joy. So what is this wine? First, it's a, it's a sign of the transformation of all things. It's a sign of the new creation that Jesus brings. Not only is this wine a sign of transformation, it's a mystery. John let us know that the MC of the wedding, the man who should have known all the ins and outs of the party, didn't know where this good wine had come from. 
he and the groom just sit puzzling over, over this while the true bridegroom and the true master of ceremonies feast at their table. They just completely miss it. It's right under their nose. Israel was looking for something more from the Messiah. Something more powerful and eye-popping. But Jesus just doesn't go in for that. He chose as the site of his first miracle a run-of-the-mill Galilean wedding at which the guests had already celebrated and drunk freely and maybe even had been ready to call it quits and head home. The situation may have amounted to something uh, like a social embarrassment for this young couple because they hadn't provided enough wine for the wedding, but that's about it. This just was not a big spectacle. It wasn't a big deal. And it seems that only a handful of people even knew what extravagant thing Jesus had done. But that's the nature of Epiphany. Jesus manifests his glory, exclamation mark. And what a strange, understated, uncompelling way to do it. But the good news for us is that with that kind of glory, with this kind of Epiphany, Jesus meets us right where we are. The kingdom is latent in the world like wine is latent in the water. There's grace not just in the stadium lights of Indianapolis to go back to Hoosiers. It's in the shot of the cornfield, too. It's in the grind of everyday life. It's in the humdrum, the normal annoyances and toils of living in this world. And even in these things, there's epiphany, hidden, wine, grace, kingdom. Jesus transforms all this water into wine, and when we find him hidden in the norms of daily life, we find something that's truly satisfying to our senses. This wine is a sign of transformation. It's a mystery, and thirdly, it goes to our head. It goes to our head. When Augustine preached on this text in the 5th century, he talked about what it means to receive the wine that Jesus created at this wedding. And to describe it, he used the word inebriation. It's a metaphor, right? And we hear this kind of metaphor all the time, especially if, like me, you have a three-year-old that forces you to listen to country music in the car. The lyrics that come to mind are, every time you kiss me, it's like sunshine and whiskey. Have you heard that one? There are millions more of those lines, I'm sure. We struggle to find description for things like love that move us so powerfully. So we compare it to being high or having a buzz. And Jesus is coming to each one of us like a bridegroom comes to his wife. He longs for us. He's enraptured by us like a man on his wedding day. This is a deep, deep love, like we sang, with which he loves us. And when we taste that, we're lifted up to glory. We're enraptured. It goes to our head. And in this miracle, there's this whispering secret that this love exists not just in the abstract, but objectively in the world around us, in our bodies. We can taste it, see it experience it in the world that God is transforming into a new creation. So if the, if the wine is this good, if it's all about transformation, mystery, inebriation even, then the next question is, how do we get it? How do we receive this wine? To answer that question, I want to begin with Jesus' conversation with his mother that's recorded in this passage. So at face value, this conversation with his mom um, doesn't seem like a pleasant one, Right? She comes and lets him know that they have no wine, and all of a sudden he says in our vernacular, Woman, why should I care about that? And ever since this happened, it seems, people have been spilling ink to try to just ease the tension of this moment. Why is Jesus so harsh towards her? Is she making an unreasonable request? Is she being pushy? Is woman just the way they said dear mother in their culture, as some translations would lead us to think? Probably not. 
Perhaps his next phrase gives a little bit of a hint to why he's acting this way, why he's being this strange, I guess. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. We were in John at Grace and Peace for about a year and a half, so a lot of you probably recognize what Jesus is talking about when he refers to his hour. And this is a term used three other times in John's gospel to refer to the hour or the time of Jesus' suffering and death. You see, Jesus knows that in order to offer the wine of new creation, he's going to have to die. He's going to have to drink the cup of suffering that his father has prepared for him. And the thought of that tore him apart. He's getting a foretaste of the cup that he'll drink when his hour comes. And in this moment of agony, here, of all people, is his mom. And Jesus becomes, I think we can say, a little, a little childlike in his distress. And he feels the safety for a moment to express that distress to his mom in frustration. Hadn't he, as a child, cried hot tears into her clothes when he was in pain? Couldn't Jesus, at the prospect of his hour, permitted himself a moment of distress and frustration before this woman who had been his comfort so many times? Who didn't realize, I'm sure, what she was insinuating when she let him know that the wine was all gone. You see, Jesus hadn't yet come to his hour, but he knew that even in the working of this miracle, as he would in every miracle to follow, he would not just be dispensing magical dust from a safe distance. He would be emptying himself to make others whole. His work in the world was all of a piece. And in every gift of healing, every miracle, he was bearing our sorrows and our sickness. He was pouring himself out in suffering so that we could be full. He was tasting a little bit of the hour that was to come by which he would heal all wounds and make all creation new. So we're trying to answer the question of how we receive this wine that Jesus offers. And what's key here in Epiphany is that Epiphany is not something that you can manufacture on your own. You can't just create it. It's revealed. It's given. So the starting point of receiving this wine that Jesus offers is simply to accept the possibility that he's offering it to us. And that he's offering it to us in everything, every part of our lives. It's to accept the possibility of grace in all things. That Jesus has emptied himself to transform every aspect of our life and every aspect of the world's life into grace, into wine. So how do we receive this wine? First, we receive it by accepting the possibility of grace in all things. So I went to see uh, Mary Poppins Returns this week with my wife. Um, and no spoilers here, I promise, except I cried a little bit and Lacey made fun of me. I never used to cry in movies, and then I had kids, and now I cry in all of them. Every one of them, I cry. <laughs> so in this movie, um, the three children whom Mary Poppins is nannying, um, they're trying to save their home from foreclosure. And the first thing that they think to do to save their home is to sell a decorative bowl that their mother had always told them was priceless. And... Um, they, uh, there's this turning point that comes in the movie for the children, one of many turning points for them, I guess, where they run into a character played by Meryl Streep, whose world literally turns upside down every second Wednesday of the month. So they go visit this character, and of course they sing a fun song about being upside down. But what comes out of that for the children is a lesson in perspective. For instance, they learn that the bowl that they wanted to sell to save their home is actually not priceless. It was just priceless in the eyes of their mom. 
But upon learning this, the children decide, well, we've learned that a, changing, a change in our perspective makes a big difference. So why don't we change our perspective on how we're going to save our home? Let's look at this a little differently. And so what's the very next thing they do? They go to a lawyer at the bank because they think he might be willing to give an extension on their father's loan. Which is just another way of saying that instead of trying to manufacture this on their own, they looked for grace. They looked for mercy. They knew that they couldn't save their home on their own, so they're going to be, they want to look for mercy from someone who can. And isn't that what Jesus is showing us in this story? You can't manufacture epiphany or faith on your own. Somebody has to do it for you, and somebody already has. And lo and behold, it's been staring us in the face all along, this wine that he gives, this epiphany that he offers. Because it encompasses everything in life. And once we've changed our perspective and opened ourselves up to the possibility that Jesus is pouring himself out in everything in love for you, suddenly we've created the space to receive epiphany and grace. How much more inebriating a world would you live in if you could comprehend that everything you encountered was flowing out to you from Jesus emptying himself and suffering love for you? Of course, to comprehend this, You'd have to be okay with with receiving this love through suffering and obscurity as much as you're willing to receive it through happiness and notoriety. Do you notice who has an epiphany in this passage? For one, the servants who follow Jesus' instructions and pour the water into jars. This epiphany wine that Jesus offers is his own self-emptying love, so it makes sense that the people who get to experience it, this miracle, are those who enter into that same kind of self-emptying with him. The servants do that by being obedient when it doesn't really make sense to be. Pour 150 gallons of water into these jars that are supposed to be for ritual cleansing. Sure, why not? I'll do that. But look at what they end up being a part of. By being servants, they can perceive, taste the wine that's offered by the ultimate servant. They get in on the secret of this miracle because they're obscure. I enjoyed looking at a few pieces of religious art through the centuries that have depicted this miracle. And there's an interesting aspect of several of these pieces that reflects the postures of the servants. And it's simply that they're little people in these pieces. They're, they're actually just tiny. Um, in one piece, the servants look as though they're, they're running around with these jars of wine in front of a table at which the, you know, the really important principal actors are feasting. The servants only come to the height of the table while those that are seated at the table are just dwarfing them. They're tiny people. And they kind of look to me like happy little elves scurrying around the party with this fine wine. They have a knowing smirk because they're in on the secret of where the wine really came from. They know who the real MC of the party is. They're like Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. They're flying around unnoticed in the woods, dispensing magical potions and just laughing a little bit mischievously. In these images, it's almost as if the servants themselves are transformed like the water was. They're transformed into playful children with their unique capacity to wonder. And this is what it means to create the space for epiphany. It means following Christ in his obscurity. It means being little. So the first step to receiving this wine is to accept the possibility of grace. And next, the the way to accept this wine is by being little. And what does it mean to be little? And there, there are a lot of answers to that question, but I just want to go through four really quick, fast. So if you're 
a note taker. We're go, we're, this is the second reason why uh, or how we can receive this wine, and I've got four reasons for that. I'm going to work through here. First, we can belittle by embracing boredom. By embracing boredom. Hopefully that sounds at least a little bit counterintuitive because we're talking about how to taste the wine of epiphany. We've talked about the new creation and feasting and our senses being enlivened to God's grace and love, none of which I hope sounds at all boring. But I've tried to make the point that all those things in this story are are hidden beneath the surface. And we, of all generations and all peoples, have the tendency to be lured into surface-level sensations to the point that we can't receive something richer, more inebriating and beautiful. If we allow ourselves to be bored, we'll be taking the first step to leading a contemplative life, and we'll be surprised to find joys that we didn't even know to look for. James K. Smith uh, wrote an editorial statement in Image Journal called In Praise of Boredom. And in it, he makes the point that boredom does something to us. Namely, it, it denies us the immediate gratification that we've become accustomed to through our many modes of distraction in our day. And this is a good thing because for the most part, things that offer immediate gratifications are soul-shriveling things. Immediate gratification weakens our capacity to be gratified by deeper, better joys. Or worse, Smith talks about how we constantly turn to devices of distraction for one of our society's favorite new joys, which is the joy of outrage. We get kind of a sick satisfaction out of finding a new reason to lambast someone. We join in the defaming of some celebrity or power structure, and meanwhile, our souls are growing more and more cruel instead of more and more compassionate. Cheap gratification shrivels our souls. There's something better. There's something that is healing on the other side of boredom. So for those of you who are finding me extremely boring right now, you're you're welcome. I'm glad glad I can do that for you. Second way to be little. We can be little by working in obscurity. By working in obscurity. So I'm talking about working at things that for the most part go unnoticed. Common things that seem to make little difference in the world. These things are strange to us because we have this longing in us for eternity and glory. But here I am, for instance, making sure toddlers don't die under my supervision. Working in a spreadsheet that no one sees but myself. Doing laundry. Sitting in a meeting talking about a project that means nothing to most of the people in the room, let alone anybody else in the world. But look at Jesus. He performs his first miracle without drawing a crowd. And yet we sit here today, and and what he did continues to reveal his glory to us. In Epiphany, we pray for and we hope in the promise that Jesus is drawing all kinds of people to the light of his glory. But he seemingly always hides that light in obscurity. We may have dreams, some of us at Grace and Peace, of filling these seats with people from all walks of life, from all over the world. But the way that happens may not be by figuring out some magic formula for building diversity. It will most definitely happen by working and serving in obscurity. It will most definitely happen by loving and serving the obscure and marginalized person in our community. Who knows what small work that you do for Christ will accomplish in the world for the sake of the world. Third, we can be little by asking for little things. We can be little by asking for little things. Tim Keller talks about how in saving this wedding, what Jesus did amounted to helping a couple of disorganized teenagers who had egg on their face because they didn't provide enough wine for their wedding. 
It just wasn't a momentous thing that Jesus steps in and deals with, as we've already talked about. And what I'm arguing is that we should have the humility to ask God for things that seem too small to concern him. I'm going to be really, really humble right now and confess that I prayed for Dexter Lawrence, Clemson football player, to get to play in the national championship game. He wasn't allowed to play because of a bogus accusation. (laughs) I really did that, and I felt a little bit foolish doing it. Not as much of a fool as I feel like right now saying it out loud to all of you. but... (laughs) But I did feel bad for him, and I wanted the situation to change. So why did I feel so foolish? Because, of course, God doesn't care about college football, right? But he does care about Dexter Lawrence. Do you think God looks down on me and thinks that I'm being silly for asking for something good for him? I think the real reason that we feel foolish asking for small things is that we think we've moved past those things in our great spiritual awareness. We only ask God for the big important things because we have a better sense of what he really cares about, what's really going on. How arrogant is that? His thoughts toward us are more than we can count. Don't you think he would love to answer us in the small things, in obscurity? In this miracle, he tells us that he does want to do that. If he's willing to empty himself to save this wedding, to help a couple of disorganized teenagers with egg on their face, then he's willing to empty himself for you in the smallest of things. Here's the fourth thing that we can, the fourth way that we can be little. We can be little by receiving Christ in one another. By receiving Christ in one another. One of the biggest takeaways from this story is that when Jesus offered himself, he did it in a way that no one expected him to. That being said, it takes a certain kind of humility to put aside differences, whether they're petty or momentous, and be willing to receive the grace that God offers us through his body, through other people. The people in this room who annoy you, who grate on you in some way, who have snubbed you, the people in this room who you just have a hard time feeling any affection for, these people too are God's gifts to us. And in them, Christ is hidden himself. Tomorrow we celebrate MLK Day, and I remember the first time that I actually heard his I Have a Dream speech in full performed. And I was so surprised that it was chock full of scripture in the gospel. Shocked me. Like the generations of white Christians before me, I wasn't really prepared to receive the good news of Christ from such a messenger. The white church, by and large, felt that he was too radical or worse, he was just a false teacher. And here he was preaching exactly what the white church needed to hear. What we needed to hear and what we had the hardest time receiving that is the truth about what the gospel means for justice and racial harmony. And it leads me to ask, who's offering the same kind of wine to me right now, but I'm not willing to listen because they're the wrong race or gender. Maybe they're the wrong sexual or political persuasion. They're too woke or not woke enough. They're not who I expect to teach me the gospel, which probably means they have something to tell me that I desperately need to hear. So those are my four ways to be little. We receive this wine that Jesus is offering by accepting the the possibility of grace, by being little, and finally by bearing our cross. By bearing our cross. One of the ways that this story reflects our place in history is that we, like Jesus was then, still have our cross in front of us. Certainly there are those among us who have already lifted heavy burdens and are carrying them now, and certainly there are more to come. There are great fears ahead of us that we're going to have to walk through. There's great sadness. 
And failing those things, we all, like Jesus did in this story, still have our own deaths before us. We still have our own hour ahead of us. Jesus didn't hold back his emotion at the prospect of his hour of his suffering. And yet at the same time, he didn't hold back his joy and celebration in the wedding. He's the MC of a great party. He provides excessive amounts of wine for the celebration, but he's troubled and he's fearful all at the same time. If we come to this story in the Gospels as a living, breathing miracle, what we see is that Jesus identifies with us so fully that not only do we gain permission to respond to our own suffering with the same honest heartache that he does, we also see the way that he feels about our suffering and the crosses that we bear. The thought of it tears him apart, even as the thought of his own cross did. Jesus isn't just in distress over his own hour of suffering, he's in distress over yours. And he willingly accepts his cross so that he can feel our pain with us. Not just at some point in history, distant from us, but right now, right in the midst of whatever cross you're bearing. And what's more, he willingly accepts his cross in order to make our suffering redemptive, to change the narrative from suffering being a thing that steals life to a thing that miraculously and inexplicably gives life. So this is the knowledge that we have as we take up our cross. Jesus groans beneath the weight of that cross with us. And he also uses our suffering to bring about redemption in the world. Not because of anything righteous in us, but because of the power of his own great suffering. The end result of which is what? It's a feast. It's a marriage supper that is the end of all suffering and death. Can you taste the wine that he's offering us in his suffering and your suffering? It's the wine of his great sorrow, but it's also the wine of his great joy. Both of which are ours as we take up our crosses and follow him. And with that in mind, we come to this table, to this feast before us. It's simple, it's a little strange and obscure, but it's also our invitation to the wedding in Cana, and it's also our invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I would just invite you to bring your whole self to this feast with all your sadness and with all your joy. There's wine here that Jesus pours out for you out of his own suffering and joy to sustain you and to remind you that one day we who suffer with him will also share in his glory. This table before us is miracle. It is mystery. And it's epiphany. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for revealing your glory to us. We know that it's here among us, in our midst, and that we have only to open our eyes to see it, and to experience it, and to taste it. So I pray that wherever we're coming from this morning, whatever we're feeling, whether it's sadness or joy, that we'd be able to come to this table that you've offered us out of your own miraculous self-emptying love and that we'd be able to taste how much you love us how much you suffered for us and the joy and the rapture that you feel over loving us and marrying us I pray that you'd help us to taste that this morning in Jesus name Amen